Hey there, it's me, Amara Jones. You probably know by now about our investigative podcast series, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, which is a podcast. But in order to make all of that information much easier to understand, we've launched a new animated series based upon the second season's content. It's our new Anti-Trans Hate Machine animated series. So head on over to www.translash.org slash Anti-Trans Hate Machine to see those and to find out more. Hey fam, it's me, Amara Jones. Welcome to the Translash podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. Well, we're halfway through Pride Month, and I don't know about y'all, I'm already exhausted. But I continue to be inspired by all of the stories and the talent and the voices that come forward during this month to give us inspiration all year long. And one of those sets of voices and talents and perspectives that I am so always inspired by is the collective Black Trans Femmes in the Arts. And that's why we at Translash decided to do a docu-series based upon BTFA to get more insight into who they are and what they are and the powerfulness of their work. And for me, the essential question that I wanted to answer was why are people who are among the most marginalized of the marginalized deciding to create in this moment? And what's the connection between this moment, our lives, and our creativity? And that's why we decided to create a docu-series featuring BTFA called Artistic Legacies. Artistic Legacies will launch on June 21st. You can go to www.translash.org to see those films. But if you don't want to wait, and because you are subscribers to the Translash podcast, you don't necessarily have to, to hear those stories today, at least some of them in audio format. And so I'm excited for you to hear in today's episode from Jordan, Kamaya, and Iman. First, I'll be speaking with Jordan Jay, the founder and executive director of Black Trans Films in the Arts, about her vision for liberation expressed through the creation of the organization. The vision is about a world in which trans people can create without limitations, a world in which Black trans femme artists are not limited to having their work be viewed as representational. Then I'll be joined by the multi-talented artist and advocate Iman Hill to chat about her creative evolution. Now that I've kind of worked through it a little bit more, I'm able to access a new love for essentially the same thing, because music is music. I'm just kind of returning home in a sense, but returning home as me authentically. Before we get into these insightful conversations, I wanted to give you a quick heads up that you may notice that my audio quality is lower than usual. It's because we switched where I record, and I'm still getting used to my new recording setup. And with that, let's start as always with some trans joy. Now, our docuseries Artistic Legacies is full of joy. From the behind-the-scenes production process to the people whose stories it tells, I'm so appreciative of the dedication, community, and love that's gone into this film. 
Kamaya Prescott is one of the incredible BTFA members highlighted in Artistic Legacies. She is a multidisciplinary artist, voguer, and a season three winner of the HBO Max show, Legendary. Here is a clip from the film featuring Kamaya and her story. When I got into high school, I saw my friend, her name is Tati, voguing. She just like went spinning the air into a zip and I was like, what is that? Whatever that is, I need to learn it. We ended up going to HMI and I saw all the gay people and I'm like, wait, there's more of me? From there, I just kept practicing, perfecting my craft. Brought me to my first ball. And even then, I was like, whoa, it's underground. It's like light, the big speakers. It was just crazy. It was like, I need to, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this, like, so badly. Kamaya Prescott, you are trans joy. I'm so glad to be joined by the visionary storyteller, arts advocate, producer, and creator, Jordan J. Jordan is the founder and executive director of Black Trans Femmes in the Arts. Jordan is an inspiring advocate for harnessing the power of art, for radical change and liberation. Originally from Jacksonville, Florida, Jordan received her master's degree in art politics from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. Before founding Black Trans Femmes in the Arts, she worked as a public health and criminal justice advocate for trans women and girls of color. Jordan started organizing to address the lack of representation of Black trans femmes in art spaces by hosting the first event for her organization back in 2019. Since then, she's collaborated with artists like Asani Armand and Miss Mojo to organize public performances, artist meetups, artist residencies, and community aid. It's no surprise that after all of her work to shake up the arts world, Jordan's been profiled in publications like Forbes and Essence Magazine, among others. Jordan, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Amara. It's great to be back on the podcast. Yes, glad to have you on. And this time featured um, not only here, but also in the Black Trans Femmes in the Arts short doc series. Like I said, your piece is going to make people cry. So I'm excited for everyone to see it. I want to start in the place where you started, which is Jacksonville, Florida. And I am wondering for you, what arts did for you as a child? Growing up in Jacksonville, Jacksonville isn't a city with a lot of diversity, either culturally or ideologically. And as a feminine Black child growing up attending majority white schools, I didn't feel like I had a lot of outlets to express myself. I didn't feel like there were many safe places for me to be my authentic self. And so finding the theater and finding this lane where I could jump into characters where I was allowed to be larger than life and boisterous and flamboyant and where that was praised affirmed a part of me and allowed me to imagine a world where I could be myself and imagine change beyond what I was seeing in my immediate society, in my immediate community in Jacksonville. And so the arts kind of allowed me to step outside of this Southern traditional Christian world that I was living in and inhabit something that was affirming of my gender performance and just who I was beyond that in general. As you were moving through arts, what was the artistic form that 
drew you the most and why do you think it is? Probably along the lines that you just said, but I'm wondering if there's something in particular that brought forward in whatever that art form was for you. Well, theater was the art form that drew me in the most. And I think all of my connections to other art forms kind of happened through theater, whether that be dance or music. And the thing that I loved about theater was it was this world of make-believe and of play. And I've kind of carried that with me that we don't have to just exist in the world that we're in, that we can play and we can imagine other possibilities. And I think that that's something that really excited me as someone who felt stifled by their environment. As you were doing theater, when was there ever a point, if there was ever a point, that you thought, I want to do this for my life, or I want to be in the arts or connected to the arts for the rest of my life. Because as you're saying, in the environment that you grow up, it's very easy for people to be like, oh, well, you do that thing over there, but what you're really going to do is this other thing, which is going to make you money or, you know, that's actually serious and all the rest of it. So I'm wondering if you had a sense ever of sort of going against that and being like, no, I can do this for my life, or I want to do this for my life. Absolutely. I think there were several points when people told me no, and Mm. that just invigorated me more. I remember having a playwriting teacher in my junior year of high school who told me, if you can do anything other than the arts, then go do it, because that means that you're not dedicated enough and you're not going to make it. And I always knew that I could do art and more, and that art was not existing in a silo and that it was connected to other things that were happening in the world. And I wanted to explore that. I also remember one of my dad's colleagues telling me I couldn't study both art and psychology. There were two different worlds and my brain couldn't handle it. And being told that invigorated me to prove him wrong, that my brain could handle anything that I wanted it to. And so these attempts to define and limit me pushed me harder because that was what I loved theater for was that it wasn't definite or limiting, that it could be anything you wanted it to be. And so I wanted the same thing for myself. And that's what made me want to do art for the rest of my life. You know, as you're talking about it, it's so many ways in which, as I'm listening, there's a parallel between your participation in the arts and gravitating towards it, sticking with it, despite being told no. So many ways in which sort of the skills and the experiences parallel transitioning and gender identity. And I'm wondering if there was a relationship between not only arts allowing you to have space to be all the things that you are, but that it actually then was not only a world of make-believe for you, but also fed back into your journey into your gender identity in terms of giving you the muscles that you have to practice of people trying to defy your reality and you continuing to move forward. You know, what for you as you look back are kind of some of the ways in which arts helped you in your gender journey? It's so funny that you asked me that because it just (laughs) brought up a memory that I really haven't thought about in a while. In my senior year of high school, I was in a theater class where we would create 
skits that were targeted around social issues that were important to our age group and our generation. And we would take those skits and we would perform them at other middle schools and high schools around our hometown and then have conversations with those students afterwards. And one of the skits that I was part of conceptualizing and was a star of was a story of a trans woman and a trans man and kind of their gender transformation and their presentation and how it was a meeting of their exterior with their interior instead of putting on a mask or putting on a show, as many people thought. And inhabiting that character before I even kind of had any idea about where my own gender journey would go, I think it gave me a lot of empathy and also a lot of strength because even in playing that role, I felt the nonconformity and I felt the reactions to it in the room, just how the energy shifted. And I think that courage that I had to inhabit as a 16, 17-year-old performing in feminine roles and wearing dresses and makeup on stage in the South translated to, you know, having the courage to be a 20-year-old woman walking down Broadway, going to NYU as a newly trans woman, a newly open trans woman. How did you, in your mind, connect arts with politics? Like, I think that what's interesting is that artistic expression for you isn't only about the importance of the craft in and of itself, but is connected, as we spoke about in your introduction, to change in the world, changing the way that we perceive people and the way that power works, because that's ultimately what politics does. So when did you make that connection in terms of wanting to dedicate and be motivated by that as well? Well, I think the seed was planted when I was still in high school. I was in high school at the time that Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in Florida. There was also a 16-year-old named Jordan Davis who was killed in my hometown of Jacksonville at a gas station that I frequented because it was close to one of my best friend's houses. And I was carrying those things with me as I went to college, as I witnessed, you know, the world in the first uptick of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was in a predominantly white institution in a predominantly white theater school. And I didn't feel like there was space for me to use my art to negotiate or navigate all of the things that I was feeling and witnessing that were happening in the world. And so then I decided to leave that space and go into spaces where I was able to organize and actually be connected with folks on the ground. But then I was met with this barrier of pragmatics and practicality and all of these limitations on what was possible. And I thought to myself, I'm just coming from a theater world where I'm putting on Macbeth as a movement piece with no words, or I'm staging a one act that's a horror piece in a black box theater. And I'm making people believe these things that are not possible are happening right in front of them. And so I couldn't reconcile that we couldn't imagine the same thing in a political context. And I wanted to unpack how art could be used to kind of reshape 
how people imagine what's possible in the political. With regards to the founding of BTFA, I've heard you tell the story and people when they watch your short doc will hear you recount the story of the way in which it came out of a a meetup that you had in New York City because you didn't know immediately how to find a community of Black trans femmes. And so you put together and called for this meetup. I'm wondering, what was your reaction when people actually showed up to it? What was the impact for you of being in that room? My immediate reaction was, I'm someone who always dreams big. I've always, you know, when I imagine something, I imagine it on a huge global scale. And so I expected to walk into this room and see 100 Black trans femmes all excited and buzzing to talk about the arts. And that wasn't what happened. I got a room of less than 10 Black trans femmes, but 10 Black trans femmes who were so excited to have a space that was specifically for them for the first time in their lives. And someone said in that first meetup that this event was the first event that they had seen within the past six months that had given them the courage and made them feel safe enough to leave their apartment because they were newly trans and they were terrified. Wow. And that resonated with me because before I found community through starting BTFA, I was so paralyzed by the constant news cycle of trans harm and trans violence and by this idea that our life expectancy was 35 years old. And it kept me trapped and made me want to stay inside. And so hearing that this space that I had created was something that was strong enough to pull people out of that space was what made me know that even if only that one person came, it was worth continuing. Yeah. And, you know, just to be clear, I think the average age of when Black trans women are murdered is 35. Most of them happen by the time that they're 35. But it's been translated into that being our life expectancy. And regardless of, you know, the technical aspect of the statistic, I think it underscores the reality of the violence that Black trans women face because that number is something that people can relate. And it's very much seems to be grounded in everyday experience. So in the story that you told, this person was afraid to leave their house in part because of the violence that Black trans women face and that this statistic works to confirm that regardless of, you know, its technical pinpoint accuracy in this point. I just think that it's important for people to understand why that has so much resonance because for Black trans people, when you look at where most of the violence takes place in our community in terms of uh, physical violence and murders, it's overwhelmingly trans women of color and specifically Black trans women um, on a scale that I think that is hard for people to imagine. Mm -hmm. So you had this room of less than 10 at that time. It's certainly not 10 anymore, but at that time (laughs) it was 10 people. And you wanted to build this space and left that with a sense of commitment. And then in the wake of George Floyd, in your ability to be able to vision, you had an expectation of what you might be able to raise 
for Black trans women and what would become BTFA at the time that was below what you would do. So I think it's interesting that the first meeting you had a idea that it was going to be a bunch of people and then it ended up being less than you thought. And then roughly a year later, when you put out the call to raise money for BTFA, it was smaller than you thought based upon the experience last year and you ended up raising an incredible amount of money. And I'm wondering when you did the final total and if you can just tell us in your answer what it was, because I don't want to give it away in, in my question. When you finally did see how much you had raised for the vision that you had, what was the impact on you? Like you mentioned, I set out to raise funds, not even specifically for BTFA, but for Black trans people across the nation who were protesting to make sure that they had a safety net and that we could take care of them as a community. And what happened was I had a total of $1,000 that had been donated to BTFA over the past six or seven months. And I pledged that money towards that fund and I wanted to raise about a thousand more. I thought that was a reasonable estimate for the amount we would be able to bring in. And next thing I knew, we raised a million dollars within a week. And so we were able to do exactly what we set out to do, which was provide that safety net for Black trans protesters. But then once that work was done, we were also able to launch this organization to a global scale. And that was elating and exciting and also terrifying. I had to reconcile that something I planned to do in five years was now happening within a week. Wow. And that my life was going to drastically change. And it was a lot of pressure, but also so much excitement and relief that I would be able to, you know, dedicate my life to not only art, but to my community and that I would be able to bring along my sisters who helped build this organization, who volunteered their time when they there was no money to be paid, and that I could be able to provide for not only them, but for a whole network of Black trans femmes. I, I can't even put into words all of the feelings that um, I felt that week, but I remember daily watching the numbers go up and up and up and just not even being able to conceptualize a million dollars, but suddenly having it in a PayPal account. It was, yeah, one of the, I would say the turning point of my life. And so for you, in ways that are direct and indirect, you know, there's this connection between BTFA as an artistic organization, but also BTFA as tied to a political vision. And I'm wondering for you, what is the political vision that you hope is realized through BTFA? What is the power that you're trying to shift in the world through your organization and what you all are doing? I think that BTFA's political vision is a de facto shift in the way that the world understands Black trans people. So much of how trans people in general are understood is either through a, the journalistic lens of people who are non-trans or the artistic lens of people who are non-trans. And, you know, we have disclosure to reference for all of these decades of misrepresentation of the trans community and especially Black trans femmes. You know, 
And I think that BTFA's place is to shift the public imagination for not only non-trans people, but most importantly, for young trans people and trans people who aren't connected to community, trans people who may be outside of the U.S. in spaces where it's not safe to be openly trans, even in the U.S. where it's not safe to be openly trans. And to know that there is life and love and hope within our community and to humanize us in a way that makes these laws that would have us be wiped from the face of the earth and from public spaces seem ridiculous and impossible to pass. And so that's what I hope BTFA continues to do. I also hope that we can continue to advocate for equity, not only within the arts, but in general for Black trans people. Something that I continue to fight for is understanding that trans people in most spaces are starting at a deficit. When there is decades of disenfranchisement, when there is the emotional toil of seeing your sisters be murdered and hearing politicians describe you as disgraces, as pedophiles, as groomers, and the barriers to education, to housing, all of these things that trans people come to the door with to understand that there's more work to be done than just letting us in the door. One of the political realities that we're living in is in part a backlash to the moment that helped to give birth to your vision. And I'm wondering what your take is on where we are right now. In many respects, there is, uh, to be polite about it, turbulence (laughs) in the idea of continuing to emphasize the equity of Black people in this country in this moment. And at the same time, that is what your organization is dedicated to. So just as an observer of people and politics, what strikes you about where we are in this broader conversation with regards to the intersection of race and gender identity and the unfinished work and the seeming, you know, growing backlash against even a conversation and anything to remedy it? I think that there is a widespread effort to dehumanize trans people in order to garner support for our policing, for our abuse, and ultimately for our eradication. And it's very disheartening to witness it happen in spaces like my home state of Florida, where I actually just was a few days ago and where I had to tell my family that I won't be able to return to until there's changes in Floridian politics. And I think that it speaks to exactly what I you know, want BTFA to be a counter-narrative to, is that seeing these laws, seeing this rhetoric that's being spread about trans people, it's clear to me that the people spreading it cannot possibly see us as human beings. And I think it is heartbreaking, not only for me, but more so to imagine people who don't have the support and who don't have the community to remind them that they are human beings and that they are deserving of protection, of safety, of love, of care, of basic human resources that are being taken from us as we speak. Yeah, I think that that anecdote about your family is a powerful one and 
and says exactly where we are right now. But one of the things that is an answer to this moment is your vision. And we know that the visions that you have have the ability to be able to come true. So I'm wondering what Jordan is dreaming of now. You know, what is the vision for yourself? You know, in Tourmaline's words, the vision dreaming that you're doing for yourself now. I'm thinking a lot about how we show up for people around the country. I'm thinking a lot about how we connect with those folks who are on the ground in Florida, in Iowa, in Montana, and how do we continue to elevate the voices that are often unheard, especially in political spaces, that Black trans women often don't get to represent the trans community on a political stage. And so I'm thinking a lot about what it means to show up and how we do that. And so I'm planning connections with Black trans folks around the country and providing them with a platform to speak up and share their stories from their own perspective. I'm also thinking about and actively planning for BTFA's expansion to other physical locations around the country. And ultimately, I think my vision for what BTFA can become and what BTFA needs to become in response to this current moment is a pillar of possibility. And to continue to keep that same vision that I had when I was stepping into organizing for the first time and wanted to bring the impossible into action. And so the vision is about a world in which trans people can create without limitations, a world in which Black trans femme artists are not limited to having their work be viewed as representational and that their work can actually be engaged with, you know, a future where an organization like Black Trans Films in the Arts almost feels obsolete because there is so much support and so many resources for Black Trans Films, where Black Trans Films don't have to exist only in the underground, but they also have the option to have underground spaces that are for them that are not getting usurped and commercialized by more mainstream media outlets. Well, I think that we all hold that vision that you just laid out. A pillar of possibility is going to be in my mind for quite some time to come. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today, for the power of your work and your dedication, for allowing Translash to be in your life for more than nine months, <laughs> up close and personal in every single way. Just thank you so much for everything and so much continued success to you and everybody that you work with. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's always great to speak with you and to be on this platform that I know is built to amplify our voices and to humanize our voices. And so I thank you for having me be a part of that. Thank you. That was founder and executive director of Black Trans Femmes in the Arts, Jordan Jay.
so excited to chat with the trailblazing musician, model, photographer, videographer, and advocate, Iman Hill. Also known as hip hop's Mona Lisa, Iman is a multi-talented force to be reckoned with. Born and raised in Atlanta, she now works as a visual creative and organizer for the black trans community from her home in Brooklyn. Iman's work across various mediums have been published in Vogue, Nylon, Paper Magazine, and more. She released her show-stopping debut EP, If Mona Lisa Could Talk, in 2020. Aman is also the founder of Cunt Collections, the Cunt News Network. It's a time capsule series of original photos and videos that capture authentic expressions of the house ballroom scene and chosen family. Aman has collaborated with Black Trans Femmes in the Arts on a number of projects, including a jaw-dropping performance at this year's Trans Day of Visibility Celebration in Times Square. Iman, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Imara. I'm so happy to be here. What's going on? So happy. That's so funny. You say my name like my mom said my name, which is actually the correct name. You said Imara. So that brings back fond memories. How are you today? I'm doing... Well, I guess it's a full moon. I'm feeling very reflective these past couple of weeks. So I think that that mood carries over into today. Well, reflective is a good place to be for a conversation like this. One of the things that you have to reflect upon is the time that you spent with so many people from our team recording your story and recording the series that we're calling Artistic Legacies. And I'm wondering when you got the idea of being a trans rapper? Like, when did you land on that as your artistic expression? Before I answer this question, trans was never the label. Like, trans was never the objective or the goal. So to say, like, oh, you were a trans rapper, you know, I I started music before I transitioned. So music was always with me. I want to say my first time playing an instrument was the fourth grade. And eventually, you know, up and through high school, I began working with a a nonprofit organization that was partnered with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and the Atlanta Opera to build minority talent who had an interest in classical music. So we're speaking, you know, black and brown people of color. I was blessed and fortunate to be able to um, become proficient enough to actually perform with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and the Atlanta Opera, and then go on other musical excursions. So my original thought was that I was going to be a classical musician, basically. Eventually, you know, we go through things in life where we plan things and they don't work out the way that we intended it to. And I kind of lost my love for music along the way. It started to feel like a chore. Trying to find myself and my identity at the time I was not trans But I did feel a deviation from everyone else around me, even people who were considered, quote unquote, like homosexual or they were cisgendered, you know, gay people or whatever. Eventually, I moved to New York in 2019 and immediately saw people that looked like me and people who I saw myself in. I felt like, wow, my spirit resonates with these people. I had encountered trans people before in Atlanta. However, the spaces that I were frequenting, I think that there is a stark difference between how trans women represent themselves in the South in terms of when we talk about blending and realness and all those things. And I feel like I just, honestly, my eye was not trained to identify trans people. 
it wasn't until I was thrusted in environments where I was strictly around like a lot of trans people that I was like, oh, this is me. So I began medically transitioning. Sort of along the way, a little bit before I moved to New York, I came back to music from a more individual standpoint through hip hop. And it, to me, revitalized my love for music because I was able to be expressive and, and creative and represent myself. Whereas with classical music, I found that it was more about the ensemble. It was about the group. So there was no room for like individuality. And as someone who was very rambunctious and inner knowing that like, I wanted to be a star. I wanted to kind of stand alone. I'm like, this wasn't for me. So I came back to music through hip hop. So after the first like major lockdown and New York was the first to really experience that like just gridlocked nothingness in March of 2020, I kind of like took this, you know, midnight train back to Georgia in a sense. And because Atlanta was still popping, like Atlanta was still going on as if COVID did not exist. So I was able to to record an album during that time and I put it out. And honestly, it was the most fulfilling experience for me. The transness, to go back to your question, is just simply a part of me, but it's not a part of my music. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is how before your transition, you were thinking about things inside of a group, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not a surprise, like fitting in, et cetera. But then once you transitioned, art forms that allowed you to stand out more called you. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. Like once you understood your own individuality and authenticity, it led you into a totally different form of self-expression and musicality. Right. I think that, you know, I'm blessed, I would say, to have the experience that I do with classical music and obviously a part of classical music, which when you further education just in the study of it, there is music theory, there is composition. So you're, you're talking scales, you're talking time signatures, key signatures, you're talking all these different things. And I had such a, a, a wide, a vast knowledge of this. Come on, musician. So when I came back to music and hip hop, mm-hmm. it was easy to kind of translate or, or transmute that knowledge and put it to this. Because I, I feel like if you have a knowledge of music at its core, then you can do anything. Like I can make country music, I can make R&B music, I can make pop music, I can do whatever because I know music. So mm-hmm. I think the biggest hump for me or the biggest challenge for me was to get over the trauma that I had experienced feeling so constricted for so long in that particular space. And once I was able to deal with that, I still deal with it at times or still healing is not linear. So I still kind of have those moments. But now that I've kind of worked through it a little bit more, I'm able to access a new love for essentially the same thing because music is music. I'm just kind of returning home in a sense, but returning home as me authentically. I mean, there's so many great people in hip hop who, as you said, like no music, like one of them that springs to mind is like Missy Elliott, right? Who has like a very clear understanding of music and, and musicality, even as a hip hop artist. Mm-hmm. So how did you land on a hip hop persona as a black trans woman, understanding your womanhood now? So you went through so many different transitions, right? You went through mm-hmm. transition as a person, um, gender-wise, medical transition. You changed your art form. But then a part of hip-hop is having, you know, a hip-hop persona. Mm-hmm. And how did you land on a hip-hop persona for yourself? Like, this is who I am on stage. 
I'm still figuring that out, <laughs> actually. You know what? I'm really struggling with persona, actually. Huh. So it's funny that you mentioned that word because, and I feel like I, I always say this, I feel like I socially transitioned about two years before I medically transitioned because there was like this immediate shift of me like, okay, like I'm only buying women's clothes. I'm only doing this. People started to associate me, socially refer to me as she before I even made that clear to them. So I'm like, okay, this is what it is. And I felt comfortable. So then when I moved to New York, it just skyrocketed. I'm like, okay, boom, hormones now. Like this is what I wanted. I dropped my birth name when I started socially transitioning. Also in that time I came across music. So I've been making Instead of hip-hop, let's use the word contemporary, mm. and which just means new or modern. Mm-hmm. So I was making contemporary music writing starting in like 2017, early 2017. I recorded my first song in the studio on my birthday in 2017. That was my birthday gift. My mom asked me what I wanted for my birthday. I said I wanted to go to the studio to record a song. Mm. And she paid to get it done. But from then on, I was kind of under like this alias because I already knew that like I wanted to be... I wanted to be somebody. And, and a part of that somebody was being larger than life. So I kind of had to just live in this like grandeur all the time. So a part of that grandeur was not going by my birth name. Then when I transitioned, I chose another name or actually another name was given to me. Actually, many trans people like pick their name, but another woman in the community, her name is Aoki. She's at the time she was a Revlon. Then she went on to be the mother of the house of La Beja. She's a femme queen in the ballroom scene, she's like a big sister to me. And when we were speaking, when she was teaching me one day, she said, I feel like you you need a new name. And I'm like, yeah, I, I was like, yeah, I kind of do. And we stumbled on Iman. And Iman just like, wow, it, it stuck with me. Like, I, I never let it go since that day. Yeah, I was going to say, that's why it makes sense that like the word persona doesn't quite work for you because as a part of your development, you were actually learning and understanding and more about yourself and changing your name and changing your identity. And so embracing a new name and embracing a new identity came at the same time for you. And you are in my hill. Like, that's who you are. So, like, it's understandable that, like, yeah, persona doesn't quite land because there's just been this, like, process of evolution in all these, like, different areas of your life that happen to coincide. So it's not like you had to develop a persona for yourself on stage that was different from who you are as a person? I find myself, and honestly, in my music these days, I find myself regressing. Hmm. Regressing how? In the grandeur, like in the pomp and circumstance of it all, like in the rap culture and in pop culture. It's so grand all the time. Yeah, over the top. And... When I was a butch queen or when I was someone that was not actually, like, officially transitioning at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, you got to explain what a butch queen is. Okay, so for those who don't understand, a butch queen is, in the ballroom sense, just a a black or brown gay man who participates in the categories that we have in the ballroom scene. But for lack of better words, it's just a gay man. Mm -hmm. I don't think white men are butch queens. Mm -hmm. That's, like, always the conversation. I don't think white people can be trayed. I don't think that... I don't think a lot of... (laughs) So, whatever. But it was about the grandeur and it was about the grand expression of my internal femininity, if that makes sense. So, Mm -hmm. I was putting on, like, these over-the-top garments. Like, I would go to the grocery store and, like, a Dolce Gabbana top, Dolce Gabbana pants, and these platform pumps just to go to the store. 
And you're not doing that anymore. But of course, because like my femininity is not only expressed in the ways that I enclose or, or whatever. So now, and even in music, like I feel like, I don't know, everything is now softer. So I don't feel like I have to do all of the pomp and circumstance. I don't feel like I have to be so grand. And honestly, my music is changing too, because it used to be so like, in your face and so blunt and like so braggadocious, which I feel like rap is so full of. Now I'm making like these soft R&B kind of melodies and I'm like talking about love and all these things and things that are more authentic. And Iman kind of doesn't feel like a rapper really anymore. Like I kind of just feel like an artist and if I have to rap, I'll rap. But like, I don't know. Yeah, so on this particular point, I mean, where does Cunt Collections fall into how you see your artistry and your artistry changing? Does it feel like the older braggadocious, for lack of a better word, Amana, does it feel like the softer, more subtle, more um, more broadly artistic? You know what's funny? Cunt Collections was birthed from an insecure Iman. Hmm. Cunt Collections was birthed from an Iman that no longer wanted to be in front of the camera. Cunt Collections was birthed from an Iman that was battling a lot of self-esteem issues, yet and still wanted to create and wanted to offer something and wanted to feel alive in some way, shape, or form. I said this in another interview. We all just want to feel alive in some way, shape, or form. And I think Cunt Collections was a coping mechanism for me Mm. because I was so used to being in front, in front, in front, in front, because that's the way I positioned myself for so long. And when I started to retract and feel like I needed to take some time to get to know me as a person beyond the pop and circumstance that I feel like I was keeping up with for a greater part of my transition, like everything was to the top. I was very Electra Abundance about the situation, if you know what that is, you know? (laughs) And for lack of better words, I'm like, yo, this is, I don't feel like I know myself anymore. And I started to listen to like just external voices and external opinions about myself. And I shut down completely. Like there was like this ego death that happened. And from that ego death birthed Cunt Collections, which was, this is Iman's, I guess my softer side, which is the ability to appreciate beauty in everything other than myself. The beauty that I saw in other people, the creativity and the magic that I saw in other people and being able to breathe life into them. And that doesn't take any skin off of my teeth in terms of me feeling like I'm missing out on anything. This is what you're supposed to do. Lastly, I'm wondering in this context of creating a legacy and something beyond yourself and alongside what you described as an ego death, which is a really powerful way to frame it. What does it mean for you as a Black trans woman to be a part of a community of artists? You mentioned what it was like to come into a community that was varied as a trans community. But what is it like to be in community with other Black trans artists? It feels like synergy. You're able to relate to people on more than one level. And it, and it feels... I'm grateful. I am humbled because for a long time, I was like feeling like the only one. I, I knew that I always was not the only one. But when you don't have community, you feel like the only one. I'm so blessed to live in New York City. I'm so blessed to have the relationships that I do because they truly keep me alive. 
And then turn that experience into creativity. I feel like having the support of community really allows me to do that. You know, I have so many people in my community that when I'm going through something, they'll say, girl, write about it. Because they know that through creativity, we heal. Through music, we heal. Through art, we heal. Well, I just want to thank you so much for the breadth of your vision that you have for yourself and also for your art and the way that these things are so interrelated and authentic for you. And I want everyone to go and make sure that they look at your story and all of those others. And just can't wait to see what else you're going to do. It's going to be it's going to be exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for seeing me. Thank you so much for all you do as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was the ever evolving artist and visionary Amon Hill. Thank you for joining me on the Translash podcast. Now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcast. For more of our content centering Black trans film voices, visit us at translash.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, for now, at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. The Translash Podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein and Aubrey Calloway. Xander Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash Podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. So this week, what am I looking forward to? Well, two things. One, uh, tomorrow, the day after this podcast launches, I'm going to be headed to South Africa for a board meeting for MTV's Staying Alive. MTV Staying Alive is connected to MTV, but it's actually a separate foundation that works to weave stories about HIV AIDS into the storylines of uh, programs across the world, but mainly in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so I'm super excited about the work, uh, believe in the work of narrative change and how they're approaching it. And so it'll be great to be there. Because it's Pride, I'm going to be on the ground just for five days and I come right back. But I can't wait to go to South Africa and to um, see the work of uh, the Staying Alive Foundation there. And then right when I come back, also within the time frame of uh, this podcast, is on June 27th, we'll be launching the fourth episode, episode four of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, charting the way in which the right wing, the Christian nationalist movement, embraced a particular writer and voice and then elevated that person across their media landscape in order to drive anti-trans disinformation to tens of millions of people. So those are the two things that are coming up that I'm looking forward to. Going to South Africa and coming back within five days. And of course, the launch of episode four of the anti-trans hate machine.